Can you say, I believe I broke his jaw? Who, me? Yes, you. Of course you. I believe I broke his jaw. Ah, it's so brilliant. Okay, now you have to explain that. <laughs> uh, what, I think it's the first Mission Impossible movie. There are some really bad guys from South Africa. And one of them says, I believe I broke his jaw. And it's so funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight in your factories, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 122 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. Good morning everyone. Josh Susser. Uh, everything done for the first time unleashes a demon. Katrina Owen. Hello. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Kenneth Calmer. Hi, from Springy Johannesburg. Wow, I don't think we've had anyone from that far south before. It's, I'm glad to be here and to represent the whole southern hemisphere. So you're new to the show. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Uh, sure. Like I said, my name's Kenneth Calmer. Um, I've been doing Ruby for seven or eight years now. Got my first Rails app, app before Rails... Uh, before migrations actually landed in Rails. And I fell in love with it completely. And from there, just tried to apply it to everything. And and in relation to today's talk, that included trying to run as much Ruby in our infrastructure, doing all kinds of crazy stuff and learning about daemons and how to do all these long-running tasks and, and processes that need to be up for months on end without any human intervention. So I've just been doing that forever. And, and absolutely love it and can't see myself using anything else. So we need to settle it right there. He said Damon. Is it Damon or Demon? Can I object? <laughs> Can you what? Object. I object, Your Honor. It's okay. Demon. Oh. Actually, I think uh, in Latin, it's actually Diamond is what we landed on. Yeah, like Maestro. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I think the official wording here, uh, Kenneth actually gave it to us. Uh, I say daemon, too, by the way, so you'll, I'm sure you'll hear me make that sl- slip a bunch. The word demon is an alternative spelling of demon uh, and is pronounced demon. Yeah. So you say daemon, I say potato. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off. Anyway, so uh, this conversation came about because Kenneth listened to our episode that we recorded live at the retreat, and I think Josh, was it Josh that said that we should do an episode on demons when we were talking about some of the other uses for Ruby that aren't Rails? Yeah, which which is, a, I, I think, a huge topic doing background processing and you know all, all the stuff that's not directly connected to a user. Can so. we get a definition? Of a user? <laughs> no, I think I think I know what those are. How about of a demon? Please do not relate it to elder gods this time. 
<laughs> Kenneth, please tell us, what is a demon? Okay, so I'm taking this from a, a presentation from ThoughtBot's Tamer Saleh, I hope I pronounced that right, old presentation from 2007. He says, demons are less than gods, which is the OS and the kernel, but more than mortals, which is the programs. And then from the Unix FAQ, it says a daemon process is usually defined as a background process that does not belong to a terminal session. And I think that that's the more accurate one. It's a process that simply has no, no standard in and no standard out, and it's completely detached. It runs in the background. The only way to get through it is through PS or Activity Monitor, and you'll usually see your machine is full of them doing all kinds of mundane things to get your OS ticking along. I have a question. Could you send a signal to a demon? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, you can. Absolutely. Sure. Actually, it's very common, right? Uh, in something like Unicorn, for example, it often runs as a demon. And um, sending signals is the primary way to give demons commands, not to send them data, but to give them commands. So, like... Uh, in the case of Unicorn, you can send it a signal to stop, or you can send it a signal to uh, do its very clever no downtime reloading where it forks a new master and starts a new set of connections and then eventually cycles the old master out. Another great use for signals is if you've got log rotation. To sig- once, once log rotates, right. finish rotating the logs to signal the daemon so it closes the file handle to the log file and reopens a fresh log to get you rolling that way around. And it, you can even use signals to toggle between logging levels. So you can have a normal logging level and, and give it a, a, a signal and switch it to a debug logging level to see what's okay. going on instead of having your daemons running production just logging away endlessly. Damn it, we're a few minutes into this talk and I'm already learning awesome tricks. <laughs> okay, so, so we've, we've said what demons are. They're like background pro- processes that are not connected to a terminal session or they, you know, things that sit in the background without user interaction, um, no user interface. And, and we, we've mentioned a couple things that they get used for. What are, what are some other kind of things that demons usually get used for? Mostly I'd say performing tasks. So a daemon could probably be fully autonomous, so they could be monitoring a system, gathering stats and reporting it elsewhere. Say like New Relic has got a a server agent that you can install that just sits there, or like a chef client or a puppet that will sit and and at certain intervals trigger off and and do some kind of work. Another use would be a daemon that sits and waits for input over a, a, a messaging medium, so over AMQP or over Jabber, for instance, and they'll get a command, they'll perform some kind of work and reply off and do something. But more often than not, they're just sitting there listening, 100% idle, and either at the set interval or on some external stimulus, they'll get a piece of, uh, get a job done. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, I, I was looking for some um, like particular examples of kinds of things that people use daemons for. So in the context of, of daemon kit, which I'll just introduce quickly, it's like the elevator pitch would be its rails for daemons. You guys can check it out. We'll, we'll have it in the show notes. And then a lot of these the topics we'll cover, I'll, I'll cover in that context. Daemon kit was developed in an ISP in, environment where people would buy hosting services or domains or email or internet connectivity. And in that context, we had different daemons running on different servers. So one daemon would, for instance, on receiving a message, create a mailbox for a user. Another one would be setting up domains in a DNS server. Another one would be setting up hosting. So configuring Apache, configuring FTP access, creating directories on the 
uh, on the web service that are necessary and plenty more that these would be doing. Even migrating clients from server to server, daemons would start talking to each other to get all the files packaged up, moved across, making sure things are, are in good state. So that's kind of the environment where Daemon Kit was developed and, and took form. So we had a lot of them and they needed to be up and people would be ordering services that, day and night. There was just, we couldn't afford human intervention. Can we talk a little bit about the process of starting up a daemon, which, you know, what it, what it is that makes you want some kind of library around it rather than just doing it manually? Yeah, actually. Because that, <laughs> that's a, kind of an involved process. It is an involved process, and it's kind of cool, actually, because in the old days, uh, one of the ways people would demonize, uh, or, sorry, demonize a process in Ruby is to load Webrick. And, uh, cause it had a Webrick, uh, demonize method. And so they would load Webrick and call it. Uh, that makes it kind of interesting because if you just crack open the source code of Webrick, you can look at what that method does in, uh, plain Ruby. Uh, and it's pretty interesting stuff. I'll link to it in the show notes, but, uh, go ahead. Who wants to explain it? I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> so for the, what Damon Kit would do, it sort of break, it do the initialization in, in two steps. Uh, there'd be like a pre daemonization round and a, and a post daemonization round. Um, just for a start, the daemonizing itself, and that's kind of what Webrick does and, and, and Ruby 1.9 has got it built in, in a process.daemonize method. It would essentially fork, the process would fork itself and exit. And then fork again and exit. And that kind of detaches it completely from the parent terminal. That's how it goes into the background. So it's, it's a double fork. But in that process, there's a lot of other stuff you want to do. You might want to drop privileges. So you might start the daemon as root, but you want to drop it down to nobody or to a specific user. There's also, if you've got any file descriptors or sockets open, you want to close them and reopen them once you finish daemonizing. You might want to recruit yourself into a directory for, for security reasons. If you're taking untrusted inputs, you want to make sure that if somebody somehow gets your code to do the wrong thing, that it's at least isolated from the system. You also want to redirect your IO, so standard in and standard out. You want to close and reopen to attach either to a log file or you want to attach it to dev null. And you want to set up six signal handlers. Signal handlers will, for, for rotating log files or any other kind of stuff you want to do, you also want to have good exception handling in there and especially a kind of safety net so that if your daemon ever dies on you and you've now lost standard in and standard out completely, you can't get to a backtrace. That that, that information somehow is captured and stored somewhere so that you can go back and see why did my daemon die. So there's quite a lot that's involved in more than just the double fork. Yeah, one, one thing I didn't hear you mention was um, the PID file management, which always seems to be uh, super crazy to deal with. Yes, that's right. So I forgot about that. That's the writing out a PID file and checking for stale PID files so that it, your code can look after itself, try and see if it's running, um, it, like after if a box crashed, so it's got a hard reboot and comes back up again. Is this daemon able to, like it will find a PID file and then is it still running? Is it not? Can it make that decision to delete it and replace it? How do you handle double ones? There was something else... Oh, it's well, it will come back later in the conversation. Oh, the UMASKs. That's also another thing on Linux boxes. If your daemon is creating files, even if it's just log artifacts, you need to be able to set 
a UMOS so that those files are created with the right permission to be able to be read later again, which is something where if you're not daemonizing that stuff, is usually comes from the environment that started the uh, your, your terminal environment when you logged in as a user. But on a cold boot from an init script, the environments look completely different, and you need to be able to handle those discrepancies. So this is one of the the major points, I think. Um, in a lot of what Kenneth just described, the whole thing this demonizing process is doing is detaching you from any means to interactively communicate with a user. So you have to take a lot of steps in order to still have some kind of communication with the outside world. Um, so, for example, Josh mentioned the PID file, the process ID file. And the idea there is in some well-known location, you want to create a file and write your process ID down in that file so that, you know, if you think about commands that give you ways to, like, start something and stop something, that stop has to know how to find what got started, right? And the PID files, how that happens. You have the, um, the process ID, and uh, you can send signals to it, right, as we uh, talked about before. And then setting up all this information with the logs turns out to be really key because if something goes wrong, your only means to record that somehow is probably like a log file, right? So you have to set that up. So does a cron job count as a daemon? No, not, not at all. Running, right? Right. Yes, exactly. It's not long running. Cron itself, though, is a demon. That's correct. Yes, it's the it's Interesting this point. system that runs so that periodically, you know. So if you think of how cron works, it, it basically fires up some process, figures out when the next job needs to run, sleeps that long, right? Then wakes up and runs a job, then rinse repeat. So it's there all the time, and that's what allows it to run jobs on some kind of a schedule. Yep. So one of the things that I found really tricky when working with um, demons is that all of my mistakes seem so much bigger in a demon. Like if I have some sort of memory leak, if I have a cron job, it'll run and within, you know, a few minutes, seconds or minutes, it'll exit and, and all of that memory is released. But whenever I'm working with demons, that doesn't happen. So for that, you can choose to, to do a forking model as opposed to a threaded model. So every time you, you want to do your piece of work, you can just fork off a sub-process, let it do it, and then die again. But it's very true. It is a very real problem, and it's a really tricky one to monitor as well. We lack a lot of good tools, like New Relic can give us memory monitoring over time. And, and with daemons, it's very raw. You're left to figure a lot of this out on your own. So a, a forking pool, so to say, would probably be better than a thread pool in the very, very long run. And it's a problem that plagues a lot of daemon projects. I know the Chef client as well, they have an option to specifically every Chef run when it runs every half an hour, if you use that as a daemon, to fork when it runs. Because a badly written cookbook can completely just balloon the memory on every run and it just and you end up with your provisioning software taking over your entire server. So yes, it's a big problem. Wait, can I just explain there? That was like one of the major things uh I eventually understood when I was working with demons is that anything you do in the demon process is basically forever. You know, if you 
perform some huge database query, which causes it to fetch a whole bunch of memory from the operating system, then you then your process ballooned by that much and it's forever. So you kind of want that top level loop to be as lean as possible and do as little as possible. And it's basically like cron, right? All cron is doing is figuring out what to do next and then doing it. But like that process, who cares what happens in that process? It'll be dead in a few minutes, right? So if you use that same model where you you figure out what you want to do and then when it's time to do something, you split that off and do it, then who cares what happens in that process? Yeah, and when you say split that off, what we're talking about, and this is a good call out to go listen to the episode we did with Jesse Stormer, but, uh, you know, a lot of times what they do is they wind up forking off a process that goes and does whatever it is that has to be done. And then you get all the memory cleanup and stuff that Kenneth here is talking about avoiding. Right. Egg, exit is the ultimate GC. Never forget that. <laughs> yeah, your your operating system is really good at cleaning that stuff up. Yeah. Yes, and then just to add to that, I know with all the MRIs, and I think it's still probably the case with MRI, it, it never gives the heap back to the OS. So what it's allocated, it will just simply hold on to. Mm-hmm. And internally, it might free up some memory, and then it might start climbing again. And at one stage, it might need to increase the stack again. But MRI will never give the heap back. The JVM, for instance, which is not really good for running daemons, but you can run a blocking process, that that still will eventually free up if your job gets tired, uh, if your job frees up the memory. I'm curious why you say the JVM isn't good for running daemons. It's good for running background processes, but it doesn't do the forking model. So if you want to run a daemon through Java, you've got to... So in the daemon kit context, you can run your project in the console while you develop, and you've got access to standard out, printing out log files, pretty much like a Rails server does. It logs it to the development log and to standard out. Daemon kit gives you this, the same ability. But then when you are, want to run it into production, you actually need to run a script that blocks. So your whole process supervision model changes... You want to run it under something like God or Blue Pill um, or, or one of the other monitors or System D, and it just sits there. It will never detach from the terminal. It's a slightly different thing. But if you've got jobs that are or daemons that would be data intensive, that would fetch a lot of data and they need to give all that memory back, then that would work fantastically well. Yeah, I've had a couple of problems with the JVM just not being very POSIX compliant, like there's things that you tend to do when you're writing uh, demons. Uh, advantages you take, it, it, you, things you take advantage of because of the way uh, Unix-like operating systems work. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is the exec call, E-X-E-C. We talked earlier about PID files and knowing where a process is. So sometimes what you need to do is you need to turn one process into another process, and you don't want its process ID to change. That's what exec does, right? It lets you basically say, from now on, make me this. But that has, the JVM was built for to run everywhere, so not just in, in Unixy environments. So a lot of times it doesn't behave exactly as you would expect in some of these things. And I've filed uh, bugs on them. Um, JRuby about things like this in the past, and I know they've corrected you know as much of it as they reasonably can with the limitations that the JVM gives them. You know, uh, James is spot on there. Diamond Kit embodies a lot of the Unix philosophies. I, I tried to the directory structure looks similar to what your OS would look like, 
uh, just like rails give you a place to stash your things. And that was heavily inspired from just, it should look like Unix. When you look at a Ubuntu operating system from the root, a Diamond Kit project looks something similar from the root as well. It kind of makes sense where these things belong. And yeah, the JVM just doesn't fit in so nicely with all the Unixisms that's in there. So Unix features very heavily in, in all of this and, and forking and all of that. How about Windows? What does demonizing look like on a Windows system? Windows has the concept of services, and they don't work the same way. So if you want to run it on Windows, you're either going to have to have some kind of emulator to run your demons, or you're going to have to write a Windows service. There's a Ruby gem, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't checked it out in years, but there, there's a Ruby gem to help you create a Win32 service. And I'm not sure what infrastructure they give, but I'm, I'm, I think it should be completely different. Different signal handling, semantics, the, the environments change. What does a Windows environment look like for a user versus daemonized code or server, service managed code? You need to somehow plug into the management service console. I think it's a completely different game. Yep. But, you know, if that's your environment, there it looks like there are some pretty handy tools to do that. So, Yeah, it should be possible. Definitely possible. Yeah. So, are the gotchas very similar, though, in a Windows environment? The the way they work are totally different, so probably okay, so it would be a different, not, yeah. different conversation then. Okay. Yeah. Although some things would still apply. Like, for example, if your service is going to be a long-running Ruby process, you still got to think about that. Anything you do is forever, right? Yes. So no class variables. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No randomly generated symbols. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so um, I've I've helped several people with their demons. The one thing that people tend to run into the most, uh, or have questions about the most, is getting it to start up when the server starts. Um, is there an approach that you like for that? I'm used to using God to boot up. So I'll run God under system boot level. It's kind of just always been part of my chef deployments. It's just there, and then I have God monitoring the daemon. And in Diamond Kit, I've got just a little rake file to help you generate the stub God config that you can then edit and tweak and then load into a server. So God will be kept up by like SV, what's it? I forgot the project now. God will start on startup and it will maintain, monitor and maintain the daemon. So it will watch its memory usage as well and its CPU usage all through the PID file that gets created. And that kind of gets the whole chain going. But there's just so many ways to get that done. I'm considering looking at borrowing some code from the Foreman project, which would allow me to give rake tasks as well, to generate upstart scripts for Ubuntu and system V scripts for InnoD to just simplify the whole lot. Yeah, I was going to say, are, are there trade-offs to using God versus uh, just, you know, adding it to your RC or, um, you know, some of the other options that you have there? Well, if you, would... if you just add it to your RC, then all you really do, you're... Resource config, is that what it stands for? Uh, file, the, um, it will be fired off, right? But that's, mm-hmm. that's where the connection ends. It just makes sure something happens. By using something like God, God is going to continue to watch the process and, you know, like Kenneth said, watch for like memory overrun or whatever. You can set all that. And then using the PID file and it knows the command to start it up, it can kill the current version and start a new one fresh so that 
uh, you don't have to worry as much about mistakes made in the daemon process itself. That makes sense. So it's it's similar to using something like Monit that watches it and says this should be running and it should be behaving this way. Exactly the same. Yes. Yes, it's it's the same thing except uh, a different version. Yes. Blue Pill, God, Monit, those all do the same thing. Um, if you're on Mac OS X, uh, Mac OS X has the Launch D service, which is, surprise, a daemon. A daemon. And um, it is how you uh, start and stop things like uh, at system start time. You basically write this um, XML file describing your process, and you end up giving it the command and the arguments for it and stuff like that. And it reads those files on startup, and and if they request that the process be run on startup, it'll fire it up as it comes up. Right, and on the typical Unix system, that process is called a NITD, INITD, mm-hmm. and and years ago Apple just changed it to do a, a, I guess something that was more suited to the how they were dynamically loading code on on Mac OS ten. Hey, I, I, I have a I have a slightly different direction to pursue here, and that's um, how you actually go about writing the guts of your of your daemon. And like many of the of us have uh, done something simple like writing a rake task, and found that the the way that rake runs code makes it a little hard to um, to TDD, you know, to to test drive the the guts of that task. So we'll pull all of that out into an ordinary Ruby class or set of classes and objects and test drive that. And then once we're done, we'll just drop in a one liner into a, into a task and then we're done. So, I mean, is that, that seems like that would be a good way to go for building demons or, you know, are there is, I mean, is that a good guess on my part or are there other ways that are better for developing demon code? No, I think that's a fantastic guess. That's absolutely spot on. Uh, If by doing it, through the little classes, you get the testability and you are disconnected from the daemonization process. So in a daemon kit project, typically there'll be a lib folder, which is ideally there that you drop these classes in. It's it's on the load path so that you can get going. And these should ideally be little classes that you can just instantiate and almost like a method object and just call one method, let it do its thing and, and report somehow whatever is required. Then there'll be a lib, a lib exec folder, and this is kind of the place where you would put the glue between the daemon kit and your own code. So, for instance, if you create a, a daemon that's based on Rufus Scheduler, so Rufus Scheduler gives you cron abilities in your own code, so you're not dependent on the cron daemon. And one reason you might want to do that is if you want sub-second precision. Like cron can't go less than a, a second. Oh, actually, I think cron can't go less than a minute. In I between think you're runs. Right. I think you're right. So if you want sub-minute precision, Rufus Scheduler uses Event Machine if it's there. Diamond Kit by default uses Event Machine, so you can get up to 250 millisecond precision in your jobs. That libexec class, there's skeletons that get generated for you. It will show you how to basically configure just your, your scheduling, and it's a little block that gets called, and ideally all you want to do in that block is instantiate and call a method. Or you want to do that wrapping it in a fork block if you want to get your memory back once the job is done. So that way there's a little seam that you can use. And the same, there's a generator for an AMQP-based daemon and a Jabber daemon. If, if you want to send commands in over those mediums to your daemon to have it to work like that. 
Same thing. It generates a stub for you. It shows you this is the block that's going to accept the message. And ideally, you just want to instantiate the object with that message in the initializer, call something, and either fork or not, and then just be done with it. So that way, you can neatly TDD it on the side. Uh, there's test generators as well. So you get like failing specs or failing unit tests when you start, and you just out, you know, out the races. Yeah, so basically what you don't want to do is be forking processes in every single test and trying to keep track of all of that, right? I mean, maybe you want an integration suite or something that that works with the full system, but it can get complicated, right, when you're launching all those processes and having to wait on them until they get to a certain point and all that. So that's why what Josh said is really wise, just separate out the work codes so that you can verify that the work does what the work is supposed to do without having the complication of it being moved through different processes and stuff and you having to follow it through the pipeline. I went down a really bad path when I was doing um, demons and I was using the threading model, not the forking model, which was probably my first mistake. But I ended up writing tests that would use sleep heavily <laughs> to to even be able to verify anything. It was a nightmare. Don't do that. Yeah, and then randomly one of your tests will just fail, right? Because oh, yeah, and then you just run it again because then, right, then it right? works, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a question related to when, and, and I think we kind of touched on this, but when would you want to create your own daemon versus like setting up a cron job that will run a rake task for you or... Um, you know, using I've, some other recurring system like a queuing system. I've got, uh, so some of the demons that I worked on listen to like the fire hose of Twitter or the fire hose of Instagram. Mm. And once that data is gone, it's gone. Like if you miss it, you miss it. So we actually listened to the fire hose and stuffed those in a queue that could then be processed. Or I, I think we stuffed only the ones that we wanted into a queue for, for later processing. I'll buy that. Another, yeah, another example might be handling inbound mail. So if you want to run a little SMTP server and, and people can email attachments in that you then continue taking an attachment, upload to S3, pass it on to the next thing for processing. Uh, you have got no idea when that mail is going to come in. That socket needs to be open and ready and to do its job. That's a really great distinction right there. So the, there are definitely pros and cons to both approaches Chuck just mentioned. If you run a cron job, the great thing is, you know, that that process can probably just worry about itself. You know, it's not a big deal if it allocates a bunch of resources and gets killed by the operating system. Who cares? Whatever. It, it's all going to go away and happen again later, right? Whereas, you know, with, as we've been talking about with demons, they're there forever or theoretically. So, uh, you know, you have to uh, be more careful. But that's basically the distinction. And if you can get by with just doing something periodically, then the cron job's definitely easier, right? But if you need something that's there all the time, and like when I turn to talk to it, it will be there to answer me, then you need a demon, right? Well said. Yeah, it also seems like basically, yeah, I think the key to what James is saying is more or less, I need something there when I come to talk to it so that it can answer. And uh, you just, you never know when that talking to it is going to happen. I mean, a lot, a lot of these other things, you know, if you're, if you're just checking on something, then you can periodically pull it. And so you can actually use cron, but yeah, if, if something's going to be sending it messages, here's 
you know, here's this information, handle it. You know, it can't periodically wake up and go, did somebody talk to me? Demons are used a lot nowadays in metrics gathering. So, like, if you want to gather metrics on various things, you know, you add a little line of code that's like, send this metric now, you know, new user sign up, plus one, something like that. And then there, there's usually a daemon on the other side to catch that bit of data, right? And it's a con job wouldn't really be great for that because you would have to stick that information somewhere, like in a file or whatever, and then the cron job would have to, like, wake up, read all that stuff out, put it somewhere, but meanwhile, zero out the file that's being written to while it's running or whatever. It gets complicated, right? And the question is, who's writing the file? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's various processes, and the permissions are going to be right that everybody can do that or use some kind of queuing system, but... but you know, that queue has to be there, right, in order to accept the incoming thing. Uh, so Which that's, is going to be a daemon, a server of some sort, or some some process. Exactly. And so, so uh, okay, we talked about queues here. What are the um, typical ways that people or software communicates with daemons? You know, we've mentioned uh, message queues, and we did a whole episode on that months or a year ago or something. But there's also, like, Unix sockets or ports or you can do signals or you know files i mean what what is the what are the sane ways of of actually getting the communication going to me i think using so it depends on the kind of communication xmpp or blather uh, jabber is a is a perfect way of of getting it going daemon kit uses the blather gem underneath to give you an evented xmpp client Part of that is just it's you've got poor man's monitoring as well. You can friend your daemon using ADM or, or some other Jabber program, and you can use, literally use the status um, of your daemon to see whether it's running or not. And you don't even need to check emails or monitoring systems or anything. But that's great for one-to-one channel kind of communication where a daemon process has a separate identity that you're talking to. AMQP is fantastic where you might be broadcasting different commands over channels and, and the same command might need to end up happening on different boxes like heartbeat getting broadcast to all your daemons and they respond back. So that would make that medium great. Uh, Unix sockets are fantastic for local communication when you're on the same box or you can use a TCP or UDP socket if you want to go over the network. And for that, I definitely recommend using Event Machine. An event machine for Unix sockets as well. It's it's in Daemon kits ready for you to go. But the, with all of these still, that's just sending something to the daemon. You still need to develop your own little protocol. Do you, are you sending little snippets of JSON? Are you sending in plain text? Are you sending in some kind of binary representation? That's something that's left for the project owner to solve how they want. So there's the transport medium and then what goes in and what goes out over that transport medium. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty good overview. And then, oh, sorry, just to add, like James said earlier with the signals, and, and when it's Katrina as well when she asked, signals is more of an operations concern than, a, than the daemon doing its job. So those you'll use for shutdown safely. So start cleaning up after yourself uh, before shutting down or log rotation or switching debug levels. Something like that is what you would use signals for. It's not for just the running. It's more ops concern where that okay. falls in. Okay. And what about what about things like pipes? So that would be you can create a pipe and then you can just 
use event machine to read from the pipe in a non-blocking way. So the moment data gets written to the pipe, it works kind of like a unique socket. So it's okay. a FIFO, FIFO pipe. Or you can use a blocking, uh, Ruby can just read and it will block waiting for input to come in. And they just need to make sure that the buffer size that you're reading off this uh, pipe is, is big enough or small enough that you actually get usable commands through. Right. And those are quite easy to set up with the Unix commands MKFIFO. So you can just, and it will create a special pointer on the disk that's managed by the kernel, and you can just, your daemon can attach to it, and you can write to it. Okay. Yeah, and that's, th- those are nice. I mean, it's pretty low-tech, but they're nice because you can just interact with them with regular file tools. I mean, you can cat some data to it and give the give it a command that way. Okay. The, okay, so so there's also been a lot of... Um, you know, you know, if you're doing a like a regular web application, there's a lot of infrastructure and tooling people have built around deploying these things. I'm curious what the deployment cycle is like for for demons. Well, Capistrano, <laughs> it's <laughs> really? pretty much the same thing. <laughs> okay, Capistrano. So, Diamond Kit's got a built-in cap recipe. Uh, it looks and behaves very, very closely to a Rails one. It depends on the pit file in the end to actually stop the daemon and start up a fresh copy. And that's the only magic, is signaling the one that it's time to shut down, waiting for it, and then to shut down, and um, starting it up again. Then in that shutdown, I guess the only trick there really is, is you want your code to give it some grace, but you also want it to be able to die forcefully. So the default would be like 30 seconds. If that application cannot finish doing what it's doing, you want it really just to then die. And then you can inspect the backtrace log to see what went wrong. But we've hooked it up very, very nicely with Capistrano, and you just go. It's as simple as that. That's a great description right there. Like, having done all of these things manually, if I could give anyone one piece of advice is use Daemon Kit if at all possible. (laughs) Because that process he just described is, like, tricky, right? You have to read the bid file and go find that process and send it, uh, is it kill, the one that can be uh, uh, caught? I always get kill and term backwards. Anyways, one of them is the peaceful, I would like you to stop now. And you That's send the them kill? kill of the right. term? term? Right. Or term? Okay. So you send the, the nice one first, and then you like, wait, you go to sleep for a while, right? And then you scan the process table and see if that process is gone, if it listened to you, Right. And then uh, if it did, great, you start it up. If not, you need to send it the not nice one. The, okay, I gave you a chance, you didn't listen to me, now you're just going away. And this is exactly what your operating system does when it shuts down, right? Uh, it tries to close everything out nicely, and then if it can't, it ends up killing things because it has to shut down. And uh, so then you kill it. But if you kill it, you don't. they don't get a chance to respond to that so there's going to be consequences. Like, for example, that pig file, that didn't get cleaned up because you killed it, right? Uh, before it could clean up its own pig file. So you'll need to clean that up after you, you know. And, and so it's just this, this complex set of interactions. Try this, then do this, wait for this. And uh, there's really a lot of room to make mistakes in doing all of this. So if you get the chance, uh, use something like Demon Kit so that you you know, can take advantage of all of that thinking without having to do it yourself. And everything James just mentioned, you you have to decide what responsibilities lie in your deployment setup and what just runs in your, uh, lies in your normal running the daemon setup. 
because being able to stop a daemon from the command line and giving it grace before killing it, like that's something you want to do outside of deployment as well. So it's this whole, uh, it's quite a huge response. I was just skipping, uh, skimming through the daemon kit cap file and it's 484 lines and that's not the code to wait for a process to die and signal it again and eventually forcefully kill it. That's built into a different part of the framework. It's quite a lot of plumbing that's involved. Interesting. Oh, okay, so so a little different uh, direction here. Are there issues with sharing code between your daemon and the, like a web app? You know, it, it, this seems to be a common thing that people do. They, you know, they're building a web app and then they start pushing pieces of it into services or background jobs. And I've done this a bunch of times. You, you know, want to have something to send your mails in the background so that they're not taking time out of the request response cycle processing. So to clarify, uh, by uh, by sharing, you mean by creating like a gem, for example, that's well, used in places. Well. That that would be one approach. I'm I'm curious if you know, you know what kind of thinks about good ways to to share that code. I mean, should should they be in the same code base? You know, should they be in different code bases? Do, you know, does coupling the deployment of your web app and your and your uh, daemon processes is that a problem or is that an advantage? Mm, that's a tough one. Um, I prefer to keep them apart. Uh, during the development, it's it's a slip to keep things in sync. And to make sure each thing has a bit of code it has. But I think in the long term, allowing each snippet of, of the code base to focus and specialize for me has been more rewarding. And I think the only thing really that you end up sharing is your active record models. And sometimes you really want completely different methods and lookups and behaviors in a daemon process than what you would want on the, on the Rails side. And I guess the same thing goes if you split, for instance, your management app that the company uses internally from the main app serving the public, you face exactly the same problem. The the one the same database table get, might get represented through com- two completely different models depending on the context where you've got the code. So I have yet to figure out the best way for myself as well. I just what I've got at the moment works. It's just a lot of work in development, but in deployment it works fine. I think if you've got if you're running a daemon in a Rails project directly in the code and you're sharing models, you would definitely need to have your deployments tweaked so that you restart the daemon process together with your main application because then your co- the running code loaded in your daemon might be completely out of sync with what's actually been deployed and what the team thinks is running live in production. So that's a big risk. The other way you can do it is if, you, if your daemon talks to your app through a little REST API and that way they can run, like they can be even more disconnected from each other and somehow they can signal and chat to each other. The app can give the main, can give the daemon commands over a different channel, AMQP, or the, the daemon might have its own little Sinatra that's just for local use. And then the daemon can talk back to the main app and they can bounce messages up and down. But I don't know, I haven't found the sil- silver bullet yet. I think what Kenneth just said is really important. And basically the, the ideas here is uh, SOA again, right? If you have a service-oriented architecture, and the thing I would stress there is is try, 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 try. Don't share the 
the stuff, right? Don't don't make that gem and pull it out into both places. That way lies pain. Communicate. Treat treat them as separate. Treat them as services. So send a message, you know, going down to basics like JSON, right? Here's the data you need to know to do your job. Then it does that job and then uh, sends back. And I would even prefer not to have them share the database if that's reasonable. I would rather I sent a message down to it, it did its thing, and then if it has to, it sends a message back to me, and I'll save it in, the, in my database or whatever. But, like, you know, there obviously it, it depends a lot on what the uh, demon is doing and, and how the communication goes, but I would rather not have that shared. I would rather communicate with it. And the, and the reason is many, right? Kenneth hit on a couple of big ones, right? If you share it, okay, now you've got to make sure... Both of those running pieces are using the exact same version of everything, right? So kill one, you got to kill the other and, and that kind of thing, which kind of sucks. If there's this background service, the point of it is that it runs all the time, right? So you don't want to have to kill it because you added some new feature to your Rails app, right? That, and you change that model in a way that isn't going to end up affecting the service or whatever, uh, you want that to be separate, so you can choose when that one goes down and when the other one goes down, and you can treat the two independently. And just yeah, a million other reasons. Try, try not to sh- uh, share. That's you know, that's Erlang's whole thing, right? Send messages everywhere. That's how processes communicate. I can add one more potential horror story to that: is if your daemon's using auto loading, and it's not been restarted the whole time with your main app and the code base has changed underneath. Now imagine it at some point it kicks in and it auto loads a new class and that class runs in a completely different environment to when, as to when the daemon started. Like, that can just be a nightmare to contain with. That's another uh, actually kind of point, right? If you share a significant portion of the Rails infrastructure, then your daemon just got a lot more complicated, right? And the whole point is to keep them as simple as you possibly can because they're running out there in the background, detached from, you know, any way to say help, you know, that kind of thing. So you want them to be as simple as possible. And so it's doing something like require Rails infrastructure, that violates the as simple as possible, right? <laughs> well, okay, but but sometimes demons are doing really complicated things, right? And... I mean, yes. Yeah, they're not always really simple things. Um, you know, I, I'm working on something now that's doing um, basically data warehousing, and it needs to have all of these active record model classes around because they, you know, that's the implementation of the business logic that is being used to, you know, you know sort out all the warehousing and you know figuring out what information to put in the in the warehouse. Uh, records. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty complicated set, you know, amount of of uh, behavior in there. Yes, yeah. but depending on the behavior, you may want to just pull an active record instead of the entire Rails environment. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, bring in mm-hmm. just active record. Bring in just the models you need. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, I I would stress Kenneth's points of a lot of times what happens in the daemon is not what happens in the app. I've found that it's totally reasonable to keep two separate models on both sides sometimes because what this model is doing and what that model is doing may not be very related. Now, if you have tons of 
inner relationships and stuff like that that are being used on both sides, that may not be reasonable. But definitely, you're probably going to want to, at the very minimum, do a different mixing on each side because there, you know, surely there's going to be some methods that just don't make any sense from the other side. And you don't want to have to update the one application just because you change those, you know, so... Yeah, and you're right. That's a great example. If you're manipulating a bunch of things in a database, then obviously you're going to have to uh, go down that path. You know? Yeah, and, and and then you have to worry about things like how the how the daemon and the app are are like where they're coupled. Is you know are they coupled at the schema level in the database, or at, you know do they share active mo- active record model class definitions, or you know. Yeah. So, so yes, and and this is probably way outside the scope of this conversation because there's almost certainly not a, a general answer to those kind of those kind of questions. Well, that's the thing that is so interesting about uh, demons, in my opinion, is that we write them to do all kinds of things, like the way that you talk to Rails or even a web application in general is it's different, and it's it, you know it most of the time you're doing things over the HTTP protocol and you, you follow a couple of general rules and with demons, it it really varies depending on what you want to do and how you want to communicate with it. And that's why this problem is so hard. Yeah. One of the, I think typical questions that everybody who's doing any sort of demon that works with a rails application is what, what you put in the payload of the jobs, like like if you do if you have like a a message queue based daemon that's pulling job tickets off of a queue and working on them, and maybe it's you maybe it's using the you know maybe it's sending emails you know user confirmation emails something like that. Uh, the, the, I think a typical question people have to deal with is what you put in that payload. Are you putting in all of the data that you need to do all of the work to rent to render the email and send it off to the recipient, or are you just putting uh, like an a records or a, a object ID or record, uh, you know, you have a user record. Uh, what's the user ID? And then let the daemon load all of the data from the database using Active Record and do all of its work that way. And that's that's a pretty big difference. My choice is definitely just the ID, but that again depends. So if you've got your email sending code living somewhere completely outside the project, not in a rescue or sidekick worker, then it might make sense to just fill in the variables and the mail can just get fired off later and you don't need to worry about after commit semantics. Otherwise, if you just send the ID and load from the database, you need to make sure that that job or that message just gets dispatched after commit, which is probably the biggest thing that trips people up. I think some, to some extent, Sidekick alleviates that with its automatic retry. So the job would fail and two and a half seconds later it would pass on the first rerun. It just happens for you and people wonder what? And that's the, the transaction at time to commit. So I guess it's also under the load of your system. And so, uh, there's so many things to, to consider here. Yeah. I take kind of the other view, I think, in that I prefer to pass the details of the job if they're not ridiculously large and stuff. And my reasoning is that I can decouple from the database, right? It Hopefully, if I don't have to have that connection to the database, then I consider that better. Uh, if I can treat that service as something separate entirely. So I would rather just pass it down what it needs to know, let it do its thing, and then notify back or whatever if it has to. 
uh, and decouple from that. But there's a lot of concerns there, like Kenneth brought up, like, um, you know, what if the payload is very large, then that's a problem, uh, you know, hanging around in the queue. Um, I try to write it where when I'm queuing things, there's no danger of the queue going away. I try to write it where the queue is not the canonical source I'm relying on to stick around. So if it dies, I try to write it in such a way that I'll be able to tell what hasn't been done yet, and I can just requeue it uh, the same way or something. But sometimes that's not always possible, uh, you know, if the task is an item potent or something. You know, in the case of sending emails, I, I don't want somebody getting a second email, you know. So there's definitely exceptions, but uh, yeah. Yeah, disconnecting from the active record specifically is is yeah, I'm sold, James. The other thing I was, I was thinking with daemons, it's hidden away in Rails for you, the Active Records connection management. If your daemon is doing any kind of database interactions, you need to take a connection from the Active Record connection pool and release it. Otherwise, at some indeterminate time in the future, you'll run out of action, active connections, which is another thing that we just forget about, but that rack middleware handles for us in our day-to-day. So that's another thing being able to disconnect from Active Record just makes a hell of a lot more sense. I need to rewrite some code. The um, unicorn has an example of that. Uh, if you look at the basic default uniform, unicorn config, there's a couple of lines in there in an after fork handler, I think, uh, that unicorn supports. And that that's uh, after it forks a process, it goes through and makes sure it reestablishes the active record connection correctly for exactly the reasons Kenneth just mentioned. All right. Well, we're getting pretty close to our hour. In fact, I think we've probably just hit an hour. Are there any other aspects of demons that we haven't talked about that are critical to understanding and not screwing things up? Yeah, I have one more safety tip because I never learned this until it was way too late. And it's very helpful. If you're going to write a daemon and it's running in the background, the hardest thing to know is when something goes wrong. You know, especially if a process dies because of an exception, you need to know that so that you can debug it. And the best way to do that is to set an at exit handler when the process starts. And inside at exit, you can check Ruby's... Um, special variable, the dollar bang variable that holds the latest exception. It will be nil if Ruby's exiting without an exception, and it will have the exception in it if Ruby is exiting because of an exception. Um, so set an exit, add exit handler that checks that variable, and uh, if it's got an exception in it, throw it to the log file on your way down, right? Yeah. So they have the exception in the stack trace. If you want to see an example of doing that, well, one thing you could do is read my book, Ex- Exceptional Ruby. But um, <laughs> uh, a long time ago, I wrote a, a little gem, tiny gem called Zero Zero, which does exactly that. Basically, you include it, and it installs an ad exit handler, which tries to save some vital information before the program dies completely. And if nothing else, I mean, it's it's kind of a proof of concept. I would suggest just like check out the gem and just take a look at the code to see what it does. Uh, rather than just using it, I named it zero zero because it's it's named after the uh, the zero zero ejection seat, which is supposedly capable of saving a pilot from a crashing plane even at zero altitude and zero speed. 
<laughs> awesome. Now, just okay. just to add to that, to the exceptions, you guys mentioned it in the retreats show is setting threat dot abort on exception to true. Otherwise, if your threat, so, so, some code in a threat dies, you'll never know what happened. It, it's just a threat that ends up dying and your daemon sits there happily spinning along and you're completely blind as to what happened. And similar to what Afti mentioned, Damon Kit, I extracted from it a gem called Safely, which has exactly the same thing. It's got the error handling and an air brake reporting. But what it also does is to add exit hook. And then I had help from James Tucker and he helped hook in basically traversing object space. And through object space, you can look for multiple exceptions. So any unhandled exception or even other ones that might have been handled by something like if you depend on Blather or AMQP, so invalid protocol messages or connections dropping up and down, when the daemon exits, it writes a separate log file with all the exceptions it's found, and it tries to take a guess onto which the one was which could have ended the daemon, which made it die out. So you always have these backtraces that you can see all the unhandled exceptions and, and, and work with them and figure out what the error actually was. I can't stress again, like, how important this step is. It's one of those things you'll think about, oh, I'll handle it when things start to go wrong. Don't do that. <laughs> like, when a, a demon separates from its environment, that's the whole point. So when things go wrong, it's just something going wrong in this magic place that you have no visibility on, and, and you're not aware of what went wrong. And then think about if your demon is deployed to some place that's different still, right, a different environment, then, you know, there's going to be things in that environment you didn't think about. So you need that info captured in that log file because that's your only hope of being able to debug it. And I actually had a project canceled because it was a, a demon that we uh, became afraid of because we you know, weren't able to tell when it would die and why, because I hadn't learned this trick yet. And on that note, that happy note, let's do picks. Good idea. All right. Katrina, why don't you give us your picks? All right. I have two today. The first is a gem called Servalux, which I think I've picked before, but since it's so on topic, I'm going to pick it again. Tim Peace wrote uh, a gem to write demons, and he handles a lot of different types of demons, so it's set up so that you can... Um, it's, it's sort of a more modular approach. With with the demon kit, you get um, you get a lot of things out of the box. With Servalux, you have to do a little bit more, more work on your own, but it does give you some flexibility if the sort of Rails approach to everything being the way, um, the way demon kit wants it to be. Anyway, Servalux is great. Um, my other one is Arl Balkon is a programmer and sort of UI designer person. He did a conference talk called Superheroes and Villains in Design, and it is jaw-droppingly awesome. It's about how awesome people feel when you have done design right, when they're using your product. And I'm not going to say any more than that, but definitely go watch this talk. Okay. Josh, what are your picks? Okay. Let's see. So there, there's a, a Unix utility that I discovered recently that I've been like really itching to use uh, for something real, but I haven't had a chance yet. But I'll just throw it out there because it looks so super cool. Um, and that's called Pipe Viewer. And it's basically like Ruby Tap for, uh, for pipes. So you can, you know, pipe your uh, unit, you know, the output of one Unix command into Pipe Viewer and then on to wherever else it, it's supposed to go. 
So if you're like doing a you know a PS and then piping that to grep or whatever, you can you can take the output of the first command, run it through Pipe Viewer, and it will output a whole bunch of essentially debugging information for you so that you can see what's going through the pipe on its way to the next command. And it's it looks really cool, and I'm I'm like really dying to use it on a project, but I haven't found a use for it quite yet. Uh, that but, sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, and, and it looks like uh, the project looks in good shape, and they've put a, put a lot of good work into it, so uh, that's pretty cool. And then uh, my other pick is a um, a classic science fiction novel. I I, I did a long uh, airplane flight recently, and I always like to have a dead tree book with me uh, because the airlines are so um, insanely paranoid about letting people use their phones and things <laughs> on takeoff. <laughs> but uh, so I read The Moat in God's Eye by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. And this is just like super classic sci-fi. It's almost 40, feet, 40 years old, I think. And um, it's, you know, mankind's, uh, you know, in the, in the fair, reasonably far future, mankind, uh, mankind encountering a, um, or humankind, I should say, by that point, <laughs> encountering an alien species that's really different from us. And it's one of the best sci-fi novels ever written, in, you know, by, in many, many people's opinion. And so, it's, you know, the odds are many people have already read it who are listening to this. But if you haven't, it's really worth checking out and reading. There's a sequel to it as well that, um, that I also enjoyed. But I, in my opinion, nothing really can stand up to, and challenge this book. So awesome. that's it for me. James, what are your picks? I'm kind of flushed with picks right now, so I'm going to go through uh, several here real quick. First of all, I don't usually like to pick my own stuff, but I've had several people ask me if I would explain uh, what I've figured out about Emacs since I've been playing with it. Um, so I did do that. I held a Google Hangout recently and uh, and uh, tried to explain a lot of the key points of my particular configuration and how I use it. And if you missed that, it's okay because it was recorded. Um, and it's in two videos due to a hilarious incident where I kill my own hangout. So there's two parts to the video, and I will link to both of those in the show notes. But check it out if you're remotely curious about Emacs. The other thing I'm going to link to, also mine, is uh, I did uh, a kind of different talk at Lone Star this year where I played Jeopardy on stage uh, with three contestants, uh, Avdi, Grimm, Dave Thomas, and Steve Klobnik. And what I did was just nothing, basically just provided some Ruby trivia questions. What they did was make an absolutely freaking hilarious section uh, where uh, Dave Thomas rage quits my game in the middle of it. Steve Klobnik purposefully blows some points to troll the entire room. It's freaking hilarious. So uh, definitely in the spirit of wacky fun uh, more than uh, learning. Though I did have a couple of questions in there that seemed to stumble him, so... Uh, you may pick up a Ruby trick or two while you're watching. Anyways, that video is also now online, and I'll put it in the show notes. And finally, I probably shouldn't say this in front of Josh, but while I was procrastinating on my Gogorugo talk this weekend, uh, I found this <laughs> great What? <game. laughs> Calm down, Josh. I found this great game called Dungeon of Dreadmoor, which is... I tweet about how I like FTL all the time, uh, which is one of those roguelike games and that it's just, you know, this crazy hard thing that you die to most of the time. Um, and somebody responded to one of my tweets and said, you should check out Dungeon of Dreadmore. 
so I finally did that this weekend, and oh my gosh, this game is awesome. It's like, um, it's kind of Diablo-esque, uh, in that you, you grab a character and, and take off into the dungeon. The things this one has going for it, uh, first of all, there's just like a massive amount of character abilities from like vampirism, you know, your typical swords and shields and armor, uh, you know, uh, then, you know, magic and thiefy stuff to piracy to crazy stuff like rogue scientists and just all kinds of crazy abilities. So there's lots of combinations and synergies that makes dying awesome because then you just go back and you're like, well, I want to try this, you know, and uh, that's cool. It has a really neat turn-based thing. It, 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 the whole thing's turn-based, but it feels real-time, like you're just walking around in it. But then when things start to go horrible bad, you realize that every step you take, every potion you drink, all that, that's one turn. So you do something that the bad guys get to do something. So it lets you slow it down to a kind of strategy game pace and think your way out of it which I really enjoy. And finally, the humor in it is freaking hilarious. I cannot stress this enough. This game is a blast. It has tons of pop culture references in it. Indiana Jones, if you start off with the archaeologist ability, you have a fedora hat that turns out to be like one of the great items of armor <laughs> for a starting level character. If you get your perception up high enough, you get lasers that shoot out of your eyes. Your eyes just get so good, they get lasers. I mean, it's totally <laughs> hilarious. Uh, awesome game. You have to check it out. Those are my picks. Awesome. Avdi, what are your picks? First of all, I'll second Servalux, as I always do, and uh, also The Moten God's Eye. Great book. So I've been revamping my whole publishing tool chain lately, both for the launch of Confident Ruby and... Uh, for the book that the We the Rogues are working on. And that's involved throwing some old tools out, slotting some new tools in. Uh, if anybody who's done ebook publishing, the tool chain usually winds up something like this. Usually you have part of the tool chain, which, which whatever you start out with, you wind up with HTML and then, then the HTML goes into your EPUB version and into your Kindle version, possibly into like a website version. So you have this whole HTML chain, but then you've got this parallel chain because there are still lots of people who want PDFs, and especially you're going to need PDF if you're ever going to print it. And so you've got this parallel chain for PDF, which is sort of a different universe because usually you're using either either LaTeX or maybe you're using like DocBook to XSLFO or something like that. Either way, it's a completely different language from the HTML and CSS that you used to style all the other versions of the book. And so you wind up, you wind up doubling your time working on styling and layout for two different, for these two sort of parallel universes. And it's a huge waste of effort. And some of these things just are not pleasant to work with. Like I haven't done a lot with XSLFO, but, but LaTeX certainly is a gigantic learning curve and often makes easy things surprisingly difficult. So. When I, I redid my tool chain, I decided to see if I could get away from all this. And what I've, I've been do, using HTML as the universal intermediate format and then using a tool called Prince XML for the PDF output this time. And it is a commercial tool. It is not free, but it is pretty freaking amazing. Basically, what it does is it'll take HTML and CSS and it has really, really good CSS3 support. Uh, which includes all the CSS3 print stuff. 
So you can actually do a really good print layout, including stuff like, you know, where the, the page breaks should fall and if should, if it should always put a particular kind of page, you know, break the pages so that that page should be on the right hand side when you open the book and, uh, the, the leaders and the footers along each page and the, the page and automated generation of page number references, all that kind of stuff. Plus it does the Knuth hyph layout, like, uh, text breaking and hyphenation algorithm to make, uh, printed text look really, really good. And you can just take the same HTML source and the same CSS and add some print CSS and toss it into prints and you get a great looking PDF. So, so it's, it's a really nice tool. I mean, you could, sure, you, there are some other tools out there, some open source tools out there that will do this as well, but they're basically as good as hitting the print button from your browser, which as you know, is not that good. So now the, the downside of prints is that it is $500 for a personal license, but uh, another, there's another cool out tool out there called Doc Raptor, which is the, it's the software as a service version of Prince XML. So you, you sign up with them and you can send them restful web requests with your document and they will send back the PDF formatted version. And that is very reasonably priced. So both of these tools together have been really incredibly helpful in redoing my uh, tool chain. I guess I went a long time with that, so I'll just do one more. Um, another thing that I've been playing with as I've been doing this tool chain is a little tool called XML Starlet, which is just a nice little command line tool for dealing with XML in many different ways. You can do validation, you can clean up your XML, you can select just a little part of it using an XPath. It's kind of like, it's kind of like sed and awk only for XML. Pretty cool. All right. That's enough for now. Awesome. All right, well, I'll go ahead and do a couple of picks. So I've been getting my stuff organized. I, I keep I keep changing the way I do this. I guess I'm just not happy with the way that I uh, organize things. But a few things that I've I've been using lately to get things organized. One of them is Evernote. I've recently started putting all of my uh, I've I've tr- been trying to go paperless, and I guess that's another pick. So there's the Max Sparky Field Guide. Um, it's it's called Paperless. It's a book and videos and stuff, and it. It talks about different tex- techniques for uh, basically moving away from keeping a whole bunch of uh, papers in a file. Um, and so I've been scanning all of my papers uh, using a ScanSnap um, i1300, um, which is actually a little portable scanner. It's really, really nice to have. And I can actually take it on trips, scan the receipts, and just throw them away, which is also kind of nice. And then uh, I've been putting it into Evernote. So I'm going to pick the scanner and Evernote. Um, as well as the paperless book and a, f- a few other things that have come in handy. Um, I use uh, SaneBox for my email box um, and I've been trying to follow GTD and so it's nice to have something that just goes in and filters out all of the stuff that uh, isn't critically important and then I can either move the stuff out of my inbox into action or follow-up and uh then I just uh, routinely go through the action stuff and do the stuff in the action stuff, in the action folder, sorry. And then I go through the follow-up folder and just make sure that I'm keeping uh, uh, keeping up with the people that I need to keep up with for stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm also going to pick Gmail and SaneBox. And uh, those are my picks. Uh, Kenneth, what are your picks? My first one is... The presentation I mentioned in the beginning for the definition of, of what a daemon is is the Angels and Daemons presentation by Thomas Saleh from Thoughtbot. 
that's just a great glimpse of the history where we all started on this quest for figuring out how to daemonize your code. So it's really nice to just get into the guts and, and see what's going on. For the second pick, I'm going to pick uh, Ruby Fusa. It's a Ruby conference in Cape Town in February, first, week, uh, first Thursday and Friday of February. It's a fantastic conference. It's, it's well worth the trip to come visit South Africa. For my sec- third pick, I'm going to pick a music festival here called Opikopi. It's also in South Africa. It's in August, first weekend of August. It's the only festival in the world where you can have your beer delivered by drone. It is really, really fantastic. Given that and five stages of amazing bands. Then further off tech is two other podcasts, uh, 99% Invisible. They're from San Francisco and then Radiolab from New York. I find... Both those are just great for listening to something else, opening your mind, hearing about different stuff people do, different adventures people go on. It's just a fantastic way to just, yeah, be inspired. So those are kind of my picks. Plus one on those two podcasts. They're great. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. I listen to them as well. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the book or the book. <laughs> Let's go ahead and wrap up the show. I was reminding myself, mention the book club book. Uh, we're going to be reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Uh, that will be, I think, the beginning of October. So anyway, go pick it up. It's 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 been a good read so far, and uh, we'll catch you all next week.